If any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's just stop there for the time being, and when we get to 19, uh, I will read that text for us as well. I think if I was going to put one heading under this particular passage, and even 19 through 30, it is this. So let let the humility of Christ be seen in our relationship with others, most certainly in the church, with brothers and sisters in Christ, but even those outside the church. Let the humility of Christ be seen in our relationship with others. The first thing I want you to see in verses 1 through 4 is this, that humility prioritizes the interest of others. Humility prioritizes the interest of others. So in verse 1, the first thing that Paul will do is say, if then... There is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any compassion or affection or mercy, make my joy complete. In other words, fill my cup up by being united. Now, his use of the word if is not contrary to reality. In fact, you could just change that and say since. Since there is encouragement, since there is comfort in God's love, and since there is compassion and mercy... You see, what he is calling us to and moving us to is the common truths and common experiences that we have had in Christ Jesus. If you understand the gospel and then you have continued to walk on with him, all of these things that he mentions you have experienced in your life. And so he moves our eyes and he moves our our ears to something that is solid and is foundational. He is not telling you to muster this up. Or to, or to uh, reach into your good nature or what you might be doing that's good and try to base what he's going to tell us on the idea of unity and harmony off of that. No, no. He goes to Jesus. He goes to the truths that are common for all of us that we know to be true and then that we have experiences. He uses that as a springboard to verse 2 to say, be united, think alike, have the same love, be united in spirit and be intent on one purposes. And so in the context of the passage and this call to unity, you might say that he is using the truths of Jesus Christ in the gospel as a mortar to bring us together as the body of Christ, to seal us, and then to call us to the unity that he speaks of in verse 2. But then he gets to verse 3 and 4, and it gets tough. Because in verse 3 and 4, he says, how are we going to do this? We, we base it off of Christ. He calls us to unity. He, he might would ask us, do you love Jesus? And we would say yes. Do you love truths about Jesus? And we would say yes. Do you believe in unity and harmony in relationships as a reasonable Christian goal? And we would say yes. And then he would say in verses 3 and 4, well, let me tell you how to accomplish that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. 
Everyone should look out not only for their own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, that is difficult. Impossible, you might say. To put your own interests and desires aside, lay them aside, and prioritize the desires and interests of others. That is not our normal operating system. What comes out of us naturally is usually, how does this affect me? How do I feel about this? What do I think about this? How is this going to affect the people that I care about? That's not wrong completely, but it is our default to think that way. What drives, I think, this first four verses is that word consider in verse 3. Now, some of your versions are going to say regard or count. But Paul has taken a word from first century math world and placed it right here that kind of means the idea of calculate. Now, I'm not good at math, but I know in math you solve problems, right? And so Paul is not ignorant to the fact that we all are self-centered and our hearts are desperately wicked. He knows what's going on in Philippi. He knows there's an issue between two ladies there. He knows that it is within all of our uh, potential to be divisive if we're not careful. He knows that we can be self-centered. And so the problem is obvious. And so he uses that word considered to say you need to think, you need to ponder, you need to come to the solution that we can find in Christ. Now, we don't naturally do that. So he is telling us that this is something that may not happen at first. There's a problem there in us, but that we can, as followers of Christ, calculate, count others as more important ourselves in and through the power of Jesus. Now, all of us understand how we can be, have our own way, want our own way. And we've filtered through things, and we've done things, and we can kind of veil that often at times. But if you go, if you went right now, pull the workers out of two- and three-year-old nursery... And you, could just, you just said, have you in this last 45 minutes seen any signs of selfishness? Any signs of self-centeredness here? Right? You, you know the answer. You're laughing because you know the answer. And see, they haven't had all the training to filter their self-centeredness, and so it's just raw. And some of you live with them. Bless your heart. You know what I mean? But Paul says, for the Christian, we can count others. We can stop. And know that there's a problem that goes on inside of us that even in Philippi these two ladies are having. He says, you can, on the basis and power of Christ, turn that and consider others as more important than yourself. Steve Lawson in his commentary, just kind of working with this idea that it's a math term, says this. Add up the needs of others, subtract subtract my personal interest. And arrive at a bottom line summary of what helps others the most. How do we think in our workplaces and in our homes? One of the toughest places to show this. How do we think with our neighbors? How can I bless them? How can I be good to them? And yet that's what Paul calls us to. You know, so often we want to find a good application. And scripture is just, Paul's just so good at just kind of giving a principle And leaving it there for you, and then you kind of figuring it out in your own way and in your own life and where you're struggling. And in some ways he does that for us and is calling us to that. But as I thought about this, so what does that mean for us? How could we apply this? I think instead of just looking out for my own property, say, I think about the single mom next door's property and how can I be a blessing to her? Instead of just thinking about my own family, how can I be a blessing to the family next door, my co-worker's family? Instead of just thinking about my own health, how can I also be a blessing and consider the interest of someone else's health, reputation, education, success, happiness, all of these things we could put on the list 
and figure out for our own selves how can we show the interest to others. But what Paul calls us to here is at least to have it on our minds. That as followers of Christ, we don't just think about me. That we look outside of ourselves and say, how can we be a blessing to the people around us that God has put in our lives? So we live with an eye towards others. I've been living, listening to this podcast recently called What Happened at First Baptist. I don't know if any, any, any of the pastors here have been listening to that, but it's by Heath Lambert. and He is pastor at First Baptist Church, Jacksonville. Now, if you're like me, I didn't realize, I, I knew Jacksonville was, FBC Jacksonville was a big church, but I had no idea just how big a deal it was. And, and he spends the first couple of episodes just talking about how enormous this church was and its reach. God used it in many ways. This church covered like 12 blocks in downtown Jacksonville. It's one of the largest churches in America at one time, like 250 staff members. Just unreal. 10,000 seat auditorium. But over the past 20 years, it has been on a decline, and it was kind of going like this, and then it just dropped. And in Heath's own words, in an auditorium of 10,000, he said they looked like a tick in a milk jug, because it was so few people in this massive auditorium. And here he has been challenged with the call to try to revitalize this church, or leave. He's got to do one or the other. Because he knows that they can't keep going the way that they're going. And after you get through in the podcast all the logistics and admin and real estate sales, and it's painful to listen to, to be honest, but he starts to talk about the people and the different responses. And it's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking how self-centered we can be. And these are not worldly people in the sense they're church members who found themselves being very divisive, who were willing to tell lies because the idols in their lives and how the way that they wanted ministry done was just so... Uh, they prioritized it to such a degree that they were willing to compromise over that. It's painful. It got so bad that they would even, church, former church members would take pictures, selfies outside of the church that they were now attending and hashtag it to let them know that they had left. But he comes to this one person in particular that struck me as I listened to her story. And I thought about it and I thought, you know, that is an example of what, they didn't use this text for her, but as I thought about this, I was like, this is what she did. It was Homer Lindsay's daughter. Homer Lindsay was the pastor who saw this church rise to its prominence. He was the one responsible for the 10,000-seat auditorium. He saw it grow to the mountaintop, if you want to use those words. And Homer Lindsay's daughter, Nancy Westbrook, is still there to this day, and they interviewed her. So she had seen it all. She had seen the rise, and she had seen the fall. And when they interviewed her, I was so thankful because she was brutally honest about the pain that she had suffered just seeing what had happened. She was raw, and she didn't like a lot of it. In fact, she downright hated some of it. But what she knew was what was best for the people, what was best for the gospel, what was best for seeing the mission go forward was what Heath was proposing to do in selling property and in trying to bring that church back from the dead. And just to hear her testimony and her willingness to confront how she felt, but then also consider others and walk alongside her pastor, and now that church is back on solid ground, and they're working towards a, a strong revitalization. They're being a blessing in their community, and they're seeing missionaries go out and churches planted, and they are growing again. It's a beautiful thing, but it's a challenging thing. But when we put ourselves out like that, when we serve others, we honor Christ, and we show the gospel, and we show that Christ-like humility to, to us, to others. 
Peter Kreese is a philosopher, and he says the world's most reliable experiment every time. Forget yourself, love your neighbor, and find deep joy deep down. I think Paul would agree in in, uh, verse 2 because he says, make my joy complete. Let me see you have a heart and a desire for others so that my joy will be complete. But the second thing I want you to see in verses 5 through 11, really verses 5 through 8, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on verses 9 through 11. But in verses 5 through 8, a lifestyle of humility is only possible through Jesus Christ. A A lifestyle of humility is only possible through Jesus Christ. After Paul gives us this This weighty call to serve others and to care for others. He doesn't then come with five steps to being a humble person. He doesn't give us some kind of lightweight cliche that we can just take with us to try our best to put others before ourselves. In fact, he comes with rock solid theology in verses 5 through 11. He brings us to the person of Christ It walks us through the mind of Christ as he walked this earth. From where he came to where he ended up to where he now is. And so in verse 5, he calls us to adopt the same attitude or have the same mind as Christ. And then he jumps right into it. Who existing in the form of God. He wants to make sure that we understand a foundational truth. A foundational truth of who Jesus is. That he is in the form of God. In other words, he is the very nature of God. He has the same nature of God. The same substance as God. If you list characteristics of God, Jesus is in every one of those. And possesses every one of those. We could go to passages like John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We could go to Colossians 1 and see what he says there, or Hebrews 1. Over and over again, Jesus is presented to us as the one true and living God. As the old Nicene Creed says, he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Now that may seem obvious to many of us in this room. We know that Jesus is God. But we have to be crystal clear in our communication to the generations that are coming after us. Because the deity of Christ is always under attack. People will accept him as a good teacher, but that is not what scripture says. He is God. And so we continue to bring that and Paul holds that up for us. He is God, but he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself. By assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. So on one hand, we have that Jesus is fully God, 100%. But then Paul presents us with something else, that he was fully man, 100%. He's not 50-50, he's 100-100. He is the God-man, fully God and fully man. And when it says here that he emptied itself, it does not mean in any way that he emptied himself of his deity. His godness is always in place. There was never a time that he was not God. But he empties himself, not by subtracting from who he is, but by adding humanity and even the limitations that come with that. You see, sometimes we read it in the English, it's a little bit strange, taking on the likeness of humanity or maybe the appearance of humanity. And as I studied that, it was interesting because what he is telling us is this, just as Isaiah said, There was nothing about Jesus that when you saw him, you just said, wow, he's something else. Now, he might perform miracles and you come to that conclusion. 
But what Paul wants us to see is that he was a man. And when you saw him, you just saw a man. Now, we know what he did and what he came for and all of those things make him special, make him set apart. But in his appearance, he was a man. And so as Paul makes this argument, and you could spend weeks on this passage, we're going to fly by it. But he is establishing for us that Jesus is God. But that Jesus has taken on our flesh, that the God of the universe who created all things and upholds all things by the word of his power has put on flesh and come to this earth and entered our space. Alistair Begg says this, he chose to be born as a baby, to live as a man, to suffer as an outcast, to die as a criminal. He exchanged the homage of angels and for the hatred of men. He remained everything involved in being God and at the same time became everything involved in being man. And so as he comes as a man, it says, then he goes on and he humbled himself, verse 8, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, when he puts, wraps himself in flesh, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop. He is obedient to the Father as a bondservant, doing what the Father asked him to do, working towards the redemption of mankind. And he does that in a way that ends up on the cross and shows us what incredible love and incredible humility means. And not holding his prerogatives, not holding his rights as God, he lets those go. He holds those open-handed as he becomes a man. And in the larger context of this argument, Paul wants us to see this one very important thing, that he came in the form of a servant. Same word as before, the very nature of God and what we see in Jesus is the very nature of a servant. So often we think of Jesus and so many names that he has given and we love them and we see him high and lifted up, that he is the king, that he is wisdom, that he is a prophet, that he is the priest, that he is the good shepherd, that he is the root of David, that he is the light of the world and the resurrection of the life, that he is the Messiah And that he is the mediator, the Alpha and Omega, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But when Paul wants us to understand the mind of Christ, he shows us Christ as a servant. He shows us Christ as a bondservant, coming down and serving the interest of others. He served and he served and he served until he could serve no more. And even in his last Act of service, giving up his life was the greatest act of service he could give in redeeming us. But even on earth, we see him walk among lepers, heal widows, provide for common people and show incredible compassion. And so what does he want us to do? How do we take this picture of Christ and overlap it with what he's calling to us to in verses three and four? Paul Reese is a commentator, and I thought he said it so well, if you will, just Listen as I read these. He says, don't forget, Christ Paul, that in all this wide universe, in all the dim reaches of history, there has never been such a demonstration of self-effacing humility as when the Son of God, in sheer grace, descended to this errant planet. Remember that never, never in a million eons would he have done it if he were the kind of deity who looks only to his own interest And closes his eyes to the interest of others. What about this one? St. Paul Reese. He says, look at him. 
This amazing Jesus, he is helping Joseph make a yoke in that little carpenter shop at Nazareth. This is the one who, apart from his self-emptying, could far more easily make a solar system or a galaxy of systems. Look at him again, dressed like a slave with a towel and basin for his menial equipment, bathing the feet of some friends of his who, but for their quarrelsomeness, should have been washing his feet. He humbled himself. Don't forget this, Christ Paul, to these dear friends of his at Philippi and to us this morning. Don't forget this when the slightest impulse arises to become self-assertive and self-seeking. He gives us a picture that our God has come from all of his glory, put on flesh, dwelt among us, walked this earth in perfect obedience to his father with the pinnacle of that obedience being the cross. To give us an example, but also to redeem us and give us the power to accomplish what he has called us to accomplish. And what he's even calling us to today as we think about showing Christ-like humility in our relationships. He also reminds us that he is a God who pursues us. He pursues us. He comes to heaven with intentionality and initiative on his part. Not staying back at a safe distance. Not backing up when things get bad. Not yelling at us, giving us advice. He is a God who has come near. Who gets his hands dirty and his clothes messy. And he does that not because of our worth or because of our goodness. He does that when we are in our worst state. And moves towards us. It makes sense, does it not? As I was doing some reading that... The word humility was not even a word that was used in the Greco-Roman world. That was not seen as a virtue, no more than it is today. And yet, as Paul writes this, and as he studies the life of Christ, and he takes the teachings of Christ, the New Testament, or or the New Testament church, or, or Paul, someone, coins the phrase humility. Because they hadn't seen it as a virtue, and yes, the God of the universe upholds it as the virtue. It's one of the central tenets of our faith and says, live by this. Live by the example of the living God coming down and allowing himself to die. The world in the, the, the times of uh, the New Testament had no categories for this. And yet, here God is coming and revealing himself in a way that they never could have imagined even the jews the early church gives us such a beautiful illustration and a beautiful picture of what this looks like their selflessness drew people reaching the poor and sick the disenfranchised they did things out of this humility out of this desire to have an interest in others like pick the babies up that had been left Deserted and raised them in their families. They stayed behind when diseases would enter cities to be a blessing to others, laying their own interests aside, concerned about the interest of others. They proactively sought the good of others. They cared for the poor in such a way, and you may have heard this, that Emperor Julian said the godless Galileans, as they were called, Because they didn't worship the pantheon of gods. They only had one God. He said the godless Galileans take care of our poor much better than we do. And this idea of Christ-like humility is where it starts. That I'm not too important to put myself out for the good of someone else. 
Glenn Scrivener has wrote a book, The Air We Breathe, that I would recommend it to you. And just to kind of summarize what he says about this idea that the, the early church was just so outwardly focused in the way that they cared for others. And the way the gospel was what was driving them and what was fueling them to do that, both in the example and also in the power to continue to do it. He said that this, this new religion that was coming on the scene, this, this new uh, uh, group that was coming in the New Testament church was seen as so absolutely foolish to the world. And yet Paul calls it the power of God, right? The cross is foolishness, but yet it's the power of God. It changes our lives. The gospel changes our lives. And he says it was this group that embraced this, this new idea, this new virtue that changed the world. This group was persecuted. The early church was persecuted for following a deity who ended up dying. That's ludicrous to the world. And then just as now, it's foolishness to the world, but in following his example, by following the example of Christ, the early church won a hearing. People began to recognize there's something odd about this group. They pick the babies up that no one wants. They care for the poor who can do nothing for them. They love people who are very unlovable. And so people begin to ask, what is it that makes you do these kind of things? And it gave them, it won them a hearing in which they could present the gospel. And slowly but surely, more and more people began to believe. And all of a sudden, this thing spread. And his point in the book is that it has impacted every area of Western civilization. That even the secular world is borrowing from Christian virtues To try to even talk about things that they prioritize, but they have nothing underneath it. Where we do, we have a gospel and a God who came down to us and got in our space and saved us. Listen, the secular world is growing in America. I have no idea what that looks like. The state of the church is tough. The most conservative estimates are saying about 10 churches a day close in the United States. But I still have all the hope in the world. And I don't know how God is going to use the church as he continues to purify the church. But I would say there's something to what he is telling us here. In the same way that the early church reached out and loved and cared in a way that then won a hearing. Just as missionaries would do. We have to take that position and love people who are unlovable. To care for people. In a way that Christ would be honored and they would experience that so that then they, you have that opportunity. You have that platform. You have that influence to share with them the life-changing message of the gospel. Listen, we want people reading their scriptures. We believe the scriptures change people's lives. But they're going to be reading you long before they ever read their Bible, your Bible. They're going to be reading your life. And then deciding... Do I want to see what they've got? Do I want to know more about that? The application really is easy, right? God has placed you where you are on purpose. You are in the classroom where you are with kids who probably have awful homes, many of them. You are in the workplace. You are the employer who has employees and you see what's going on in their lives. You are living on the street that you live on intentionally. God is sovereign over those things. And more and more, you might be the only Christian in some of those people's lives. 
So let's not waste it. Let's have the Christ-like humility that is willing to show the interest or prioritize the interest of others. Now, let me just say this, and then we're going to move on. Because what I don't want you to hear is that I'm saying, hey, live up to Jesus. Because that will break you. We can't do that. And so I think there's two things going on here. He is giving us an example in Jesus Christ. But I think he's also saying your salvation, you see it in 5 through 11. You see the gospel in 5 through 11. This is what changed your life. That a Savior did this for you. And it is only by that power and rehearsing that over and over and over again daily that we can have the power to actually do what Christ is calling us to do to exhibit that humility. Because that's not natural to us. We have to renew our minds as the scriptures call us to, which means we have to be saturated in the word of God. To reset our minds daily in Christ through his word. Study his life. Saturate yourself in the truth. Meditate on him and what he's done for you. And then let the spirit of God use that to change your heart. Peak your mind so that in those moments that you can consider others interest. So this is the argument that Paul is making. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the pinnacle of this humility. It gives us an example. But even more so, it gives us the power to accomplish it. But Paul and the Holy Spirit know that we need real people in our lives to show us this as well. So go down to verses 19 through 30. This is known as the travelogue. And most of us in our quiet times just read on through this. But Paul never wastes an opportunity to continue to make an argument. Now see if you pick it up. Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. So that I too may be encouraged by news about you. For I have no one else like-minded, get this, who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character. Because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I am confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. But I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need, since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was sick, that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am very eager to send him so that you may rejoice again when you see him, and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and hold people like him in honor. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry. Here's the third thing I want you to see in this. Godly relationships help us grow in humility. Godly relationships help us grow in humility. He is reporting back to them what he wants to do with Timothy and Epaphroditus. Just basic, practical, admin stuff, logistics, right? I want to send these guys back to you. I know you're concerned about Epaphroditus. But in the midst of that, he gives us living illustrations of what it looks like to have the mind of Christ and Christ-like humility in our relationships. You see, Paul knows, as do, uh, we, as do we, that humility or any Christian virtue is caught as much as it is taught. Now, we have to get guidance from the Word to understand these things, but often we catch them as we see them lived out. Jesus Christ is the perfect example, and we see that, but often we feel like the sinless Son of God is an impossible example to follow, and in some ways He is. 
But God has given us a gift of brothers and sisters in the local church to walk alongside us, flesh and blood examples of what it looks like to have the mind of Christ. And so when he comes to Timothy and Epaphroditus, he knows that the Philippians know them. Look at verse 22. You know his proven character. You see, sometimes, and I do this too as a preacher, we take godly examples, but they're in a a frame, if you will. So we take Elizabeth Elliot or Charles Spurgeon or whoever you think, and we take this example and, and we use it as an illustration, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's okay to do that. But we, we only see one part of that. But what Paul wants them to do, and I think calls us to do, is to see all of their life. To be in not just an example, that's good, but to see the relationship and the, the example that flows out of that relationship. That that is even better. You see, sometimes we can just take a frame of what someone does and we just don't get... It just feels unattainable. It's kind of like Facebook, of all things, right? The pictures we put on Facebook of our little angels, and it's almost like a glowing behind them. But if you could just get the person's camera roll and the 38 other pictures that they had to take to get that one to make their family look perfect, that's real life. You know what I mean? I'll never forget, someone gave us this beautiful uh, nativity one Christmas. And so I wanted to put the kids around and take a picture. I took the picture. Well, we took about 100 pictures. We finally got one, and I mean, it really was. It was beautiful. And I knew he would get a kick out of this, so I sent him the picture before that. And it looked like, I won't name the kid, but it looked like one of the kids had come off the top turnbuckle into the nativity scene. You know what I mean? I said, now that's real life. But you know, what Paul wants them to say, see here is that he, they know Timothy and Epaphroditus. They know their lives, and they know the consistent pattern that exists in them the good and the bad they've walked with them in wins and losses they've seen them seen them sin but they've also seen them persevere they've seen them grow they've seen seen them change and paul says the pattern of their lives and the pattern of the lives even in this room help us grow and understand christ-like humility better it's just natural for us to pick up Things from people that we are around a lot. You know what I mean? If you work in the trades, when you first get started, if you're working with an older gentleman or an older woman who knows the tricks of the trade, it takes you a lot longer to do what they do because they've learned those shortcuts. But if you keep hanging with them, you pick those shortcuts up too. And you get the experience from them. You learn what they do. We worry about who our kids hang out with. Why? Because they'll rub off one another, right? Even in the way that we talk, we laugh at northerners because they speak northern. I don't know. And they laugh at us because we speak southern. Because that's who we've been around our whole lives. And so the beauty of the local church is that you are walking among people who you know and who you do life with on a consistent basis. That you can see Christ-like character in them and glean that from them. 1 Thessalonians 2, 8, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, 1 Corinthians 4, 16, and 17 all call us to imitate others as they imitate Christ. And so for Timothy and Epaphroditus, let me just get back to the text real briefly. Timothy, we know, is a gifted minister. We know that he has many gifts. But what the Philippians need is his character. They need to see in him the person who cares for their interest and in so doing cares for the interest of Christ.
We need to look around us in a me culture, in a selfie culture. People who say they want their truth and are only concerned about themselves. We need to look around in the body of Christ and find those people who show interest in others and serve others. What about Epaphroditus? He uh, for, seems to have been the one who took the money, uh, the partnership that the Philippians had with Paul. He took that to Paul. But Epaphroditus is not an apostle, and he doesn't even run with an apostle. He's, just, he's a church member. He's a part of the body of Christ in Philippi. If he was here today, he would serve on committees and mow grass at the church. There's nothing flashy necessarily about Epaphroditus, and we don't even hear of him holding an f- official position Within the church, but what we do know about Epaphroditus and why he holds him up is he is a guy who loves Jesus and he loves his church and he loves missionaries and he wants other people to see and hear the gospel and he wants missionaries cared for and partnerships extended and seeing the gospel go to the parts of the world that had never been. Listen, all around us in the local church are people that we can see and imitate. Even today, even right now, people are watching our kids. Slides are being moved as we sing songs. Someone had to plan the songs. The sound is being monitored. In my church, seats have to be put out. This kid, this, this morning, kids were taught God's Word. People stay up late working on their lessons for Sunday school or small group or whatever it may be. People generously give. All over the place, we see people who are concerned about the interests of others. You see, we usually marvel at the famous, the talented, the powerful, and the wealthy. But here we're told to honor the servant of Jesus Christ. To look out for them, to model our lives after them, and to honor them. The most effective influence, or most effective influencers, are the people that we do life with, with day in and day out. So search them out. Watch them. Learn from them. Glean for them. And even on a day like today, when we honor JT, as I think about his life, just as, J- just as Gerald said earlier, in him leading worship and preaching, he sang at my wedding, he counsels people, he plans mission trips, preaches funerals, helps people as they walk through uh, a call to ministry, leads student ministry years ago, loves kids and makes them feel special. He's shown us what it looks like to love his wife and his family. He's held the hands of people we've loved as they go on to glory. He makes us laugh. He makes us cry. And the reason we love him and the reason we honor you today, brother, is because you've been doing that faithfully for 30 years. And so just as he calls us to honor people like Epaphroditus, we honor you today because of that. JT doesn't like that, and he told me he doesn't, so we'll end with Christ. May the example of Jesus Christ impact us. May it fuel us to live out Christ-like humility in our relationship with others. May we remember the gospel in our own lives. And if you're not a believer here today, listen, what we all believe is this, that we were sinners with no hope. We could not save ourselves. We needed someone outside of us to come and save us. We were a mess. And Jesus Christ, in some way in His providence, sends the gospel to us. Maybe numerous ways and in numerous people. But the message is the same. That in the person of Jesus Christ, we have a 
God and man who came down and lived a perfect life of obedience. Perfect righteousness that can be ours. And we give him in exchange our sin. And he goes to the cross and he dies on behalf of us as our substitute. The great exchange. And through faith and repentance. And understanding that he didn't just die and go into a grave. But he was raised three days. And the promise and the hope of the resurrection that one day all of this mess is going to be made right. And that his, re- his sacrifice was accepted by God the Father. And the resurrection is the stamp of approval over that. That if we understand those truths and we believe them. And we turn to him in faith and we turn away from ourselves and our own ideas in repentance. He will save us. And he will set the course of our life, not always easy, but he will set the course of our lives in walking with him, being blessed through the gospel and also blessing others as we live this life. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your kindness towards us. Jesus, we thank you for this text that just reminds us Lord, of the incredible humility that you showed us. Lord, but we know that that was just so much more than an example. You weren't just saying, follow my example. You were doing something there that would give us the power that would change our own lives. To give us a new way of thinking. To give us a a new hope. That in every situation that you would be there with us and walking through that with us. And God, I pray Lord, that you would help us to be the servant that you are, that we would imitate Christ in our lives in everything that we do and in every place that we go. And that you would help us, Holy Spirit, to show the Christ-like humility in all of our relationships, to honor you with our lives and bring glory to Christ. Jesus, we thank you that you didn't stay in that grave. We thank you that you were raised and now that you are seated at the right hand of the Father. And there is a day coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. And God, we thank you that we do that now. We thank you that you have worked in our hearts that we bow before you even now. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your kindness towards us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.